Hi, I'm Vanessa. I'm Elena. I'm Genesis. And I'm Cheyenne. And, and we're, we're Fulbright, Fulbright Latinx. Fulbright Latinx is an inclusive community that bridges the relationships between past, present, and potential Latinx Fulbrighters. Our mission is to highlight and celebrate our unique yet similar experiences and inspire more Latinx candidates to apply to the Fulbright program. With these efforts, we aim to paint a more accurate representation of our intersectional community to reshape global perceptions of U.S. leadership by elevating Latinx leaders that reflect the diversity of the world we actually live in. We hope that by centering our voices and increasing our visibility, Fulbright Latinx can offer a space where members of our comunidad see a reflection of themselves and are empowered to embark on a Fulbright journey of their own. Thanks for joining us. Genesis here, and welcome back to Fulbright Latinx's Estamos Juntos or Estamos Juntos podcast series. We are now bringing you your third episode from the last panel that we held, which is called How to Create an Affinity Group. And I just want to take a moment to thank all of the very generous uh, exchange alumni who have offered their time and their wisdom on these different panels, and as well as a special shout out, of course, to the Fulbright Latinx board, um, who have dedicated time to converting this uh, the panel to the podcast so you can listen to it on this platform as well if you're a podcast listener the way that I am. But we're grateful to be bringing you this particular episode, How to Create an Affinity Group, because I think it really speaks to the need for community either while you're abroad on your exchange alumni program or even after you come back. Uh, you'll hear from the founders of three different uh, Fulbright alumni groups and how they went on to create the affinity groups that exist now, the challenges that come with creating these affinity groups, but also the strength, the joy, and the empowerment that comes from bringing our communities together and being of support to fill in the gaps that usually exist uh, when taking advantage of such opportunities. So we hope that you find this helpful no matter where you are in your exchange program journey, and that it serves for an inspiration for you to either get involved with an affinity group or start your own. All right, well, we hope you enjoy. I'm Cheyenne. Um, it's so great to meet you all. So I am one of the Fulbright Latinx uh, coordinators, board of directors, whatever you'd like to call it. And I helped put together this panel. And so the panel today that we're going to hear about is about how to create an affinity group, which is something that I think is a topic a lot of people want to know something about, whether that's an affinity group while they're abroad um, or if they're interested in becoming a little bit more affiliated with their program once they become alumni. So with that said, I just want to give a little plug to our generous benefactors. Um, we won or received an award from the Citizen Diplomacy Action Fund to put on this series of panels. Uh, I'll send out links after the panels to anyone that's interested, but we also have other panels that are about different topics that might be uh, of interest to specifically Latinx alumni of exchange programs, but of course, maybe applicable to a wide variety of people. So without further ado, I will turn it over to the moderator and the person 
who is going to be running this panel today, Liz, uh, to introduce herself and get everything started. Thank you, Cheyenne, and thank you, Vanessa, for having me in this space. I am Liz Alarcón. I'm the founder and executive director of Pulso, a media startup, but I am also a Fulbright alum. So I did my Fulbright in Costa Rica in 2013. I was doing research there on the border of Costa Rica and Nicaragua. And so I am just so excited to be here with you all because I myself stay connected to uh, my Fulbright alum and have been to the Fulbright conference and would love to learn from all of you all and see what's possible here in South Florida because there are many exchange alums and here especially we don't have as many groups or really many affinity groups from many of the exchange programs. So I'm not only excited to be moderating this conversation, but to learn from all of you. So I'll pass it to you all to introduce yourselves. Um, tell us about your affinity group and and how long you've been running it or involved because this is really your show. So whoever wants to start, I see Vanessa to my left. So you can start and then popcorn into the next person. Sure. Hi, everyone. My name is Vanessa. I use she, her pronouns. I am co-founder and director of communications at Fulbright Latinx. Fulbright Latinx started in 2019. Um, so we've been around for a few years and I'll popcorn it to Chi-Chi. Hi everyone. I'm Chi-Chi, Chiamaka, have no preference. And I am a founder slash co-founder of Fulbright Noir, which started in, I guess, technically 2017, 2018. Um, and that was during the time I was on my grant in Belgium. And currently I'm in my fifth and final year of my PhD program in pharmacology at the University of Michigan. So I am based here in Michigan. Happy to be here. And I will popcorn to Tim. Thanks, Chi-Chi. Uh, my name is Tim Sensenig. I am the founder, president, and CEO of Fulbright Prism. Uh, we are the LGBTQ affinity group, so we seek to empower um, LGBTQ Fulbrighters to be out in the world. We were founded in 2018, shortly after Fulbright Noir, our true inspiration, that has to be noted. Um, and we've been uh, active ever since. And I am currently a lawyer in Washington, D.C. Oh, thank you all. And you said founder and CEO. We'll get to the structure of um, Fulbright Prism in a little bit, Tim. I'm sure we're all super curious to find out about it. So we all uh, have something in common, right? I'm hearing 2017, 2018, Fulbright Latinx, Fulbright Noir, Fulbright Prism. Why do you all think that time period was the time that your affinity groups came to be. And also several of you, I think Chichi, you and Tim, you are heavily involved in founding and starting your groups. Why did you start them? Um, yeah, I think that that time period, I can think of a lot of things that were happening in our country. And maybe that has some influence as to why you all think it was a need to start these groups, but that's just my hunch. I wanna pass it to you three as to, you know, your origin story. How did you all start? Um, why do you think this time period started? And also, this is like a three-part question. Um, I'd love to know how you all inspired each other, especially you, Tim, mentioning the, the inspo from, from Chi-Chi. So I'm going to start with you, Chi-Chi. And then uh, Vanessa and Tim, feel free to jump in as you see fit. Yeah. Um, so I remember before I started, left for my grant. So I was on a Fulbright grant as well as another 
um, exchange program at the same time. And when I went to my orientations for both fellowships, I was the only Black person um, in both of those spaces. And I remember when I was looking for community, inspiration, people that I could look up to who had gone abroad, I started using social media to try and find other uh, Black scholars who had gone on Fulbrights. And so that gave me the inspiration to start with an Instagram page. So modeled after Travel Noir, which kind of the same concept was meant to highlight Black people traveling all over the world. And so that was the inspiration for Fulbright Noir. And so I pretty much just looked up the hashtag, tried to find people and started featuring uh, Black grantees, past, present, future um, on the site, and then reached out to the other co-founders who were also Black women on Fulbrights at the same time. So one in France, uh, Spain, and then another grantee who later joined our cohort um, from Belgium. So I, you know, it's funny when thinking about the the timeline when we wrote, you know, we wrote a proposal to host an inaugural Fulbright Noir conference in Belgium for Black grantees. And in that proposal, we wrote, you know, we're essentially focusing on Black facing issues because of anti-Black racism that exists within all communities, right? And we had said that we hope this would inspire the creation of other affinity groups um, that, you know, maybe we didn't identify with, but other people that kind of wanted to see themselves reflected and represented, you know, we hope that more affinity groups will come. And that's exactly what happened, which is really, really nice to see. So I think the timeline for us was really just, there was a need, um, you know, I was there. If I see a space and I can improve it, I'm going to do that. So that's really why, you know, I, I started it. I just kind of felt isolated and thought, you know, I'm sure there's many other grantees that feel the same way. So I will focus on, you know, what I know and can relate to. Um, so that's that's kind of how it started and what what um, inspired me to start the group. I'm inspired already. And I and I love the concept of the Travel Noir page. So I'm totally seeing uh, that gap that you're filling and and can relate to Chichi. When I was on my Fulbright um, in Costa Rica, I was the only Latina there. So when I found Fulbright Latinx, probably last year, I was like, how is it possible that there are seven scholars, two English teaching assistants in a Latin American country, and I'm the only Latina? Um, so I'm really grateful for the platform and really the precedent that you all set for PRISM and Fulbright Latinx and hopefully other affinity groups from those watching beyond even Fulbright, right? I know that other um, exchange programs and other people who have been involved with other programs will be inspired by this too. So I love that you shared that. Vanessa, Tim? So in 2019, I was a Fulbright alumni ambassador and I actually met Chi Chi. Uh, we were in the same cohort. And when I heard about Fulbright Noir, I just thought it was super awesome super amazing and uh another full fulbright alumni ambassador came to me and we both talked about it and we're like yeah well a similar issue like our cohorts are predominantly white you know surprise surprise um and there's not a lot of like representation in certain latin american countries i feel like there would probably be more latinx folks but like even beyond that right because i traveled so i did my fulbright in jordan in 2016 and i was 
I feel like I was the only Latina there too. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's definitely an issue and, you know, it comes from like, people don't know what they don't know. People can't apply to something they don't know exists. And like, that's part of like the ambassador mission is to like, get these stories out, get um, visibility out to, to folks that don't know that these things are here for them and to make space in spaces like Fulbright that historically like wasn't created for black and brown folks right um so it is really important to like take up the space and to kind of reclaim that and so inspired by Fulbright Noir Fulbright Latinx was born and um I'm a graphic designer it's kind of like what I do so I kind of took it on social media and like you know did did all the things that uh, I could do. I did lives. I, you know, we interacted with other affinity groups since we found out they were there. And what's beautiful about the space is like, there's so much intersection in the space, right? Like we have black, Latinx, queer folks, right. And, or like disabled folks. And so a lot of it kind of like overlaps and we are like helping each other do all of this like legwork. Um, so it is really nice how that has kind of uh, come together and um yeah and like people like you find out about us and it's it's really great because it's just alumni <laughs> doing it you know yeah I'm and I found you all look how many years later right it must have been last year 2021 and and like I shared at the beginning I want to stay involved and I'm in that space of do I do something locally with my Fulbright chapter? Is it an affinity group? How, what's the easiest way for me uh, at this stage of my career with a young daughter to stay involved um, given, given my lifestyle? And so even just knowing that you all have bomb IG pages, all three of you all, and how you all are interacting online um, is really great. So your graphics, Vanessa, I will say, uh, definitely stood out as I started following the page. and it And it's really... Um, important to know the meeting people where they're at part of you all's work. And I'm interested in hearing a bit more of that when we dig into the programming of each of your groups. I want to pass it to you, Tim, to share your origin story, um, the, the, the Fulbright Prism origin story. You can share the Tim origin story too, if you want. <laughs> no, it's hard to, hard to find uh, anything else to say. Chichi and, and Vanessa really covered, I think, a lot of the same sentiments I was aiming to cover. Um, we, I, I, as far as like the specific time period, I actually never really thought about that. But I think for us, it was just, I had met two really close friends on Fulbright, both, both who are also queer. And we had left the program, um, grateful for our friendship, but kind of thinking that um, we didn't really get to ex like engage that side of our identity on our trip and nobody was really there to help us find community or special resources or any sort of, you know, things like that, that, that we, that we really wanted to like kind of connect to on our grant. Um, and we felt like that piece was missing. Thankfully we were in, at least as far as, you know, um, political dynamics go. We were in a more accepting country. We, we all did our Fulbrights in Germany, um, which is a little bit more accepting. But during our grant year, we also just heard these like horror stories of, of people who had terrible experiences at their school, like principals treating them badly or teachers discriminating against them. And um, and more often than, than we would really have expected to have heard from a, from a Fulbright 
um, grantees. So kind of we, we, we were kind of like mulling all of this over after the end of our grant period, right when we saw um, Fulbright Noir really become active on Instagram. And we thought this is a great idea to really showcase those those grantees and alumni who are out there doing really big things in the world. Um, bring them together and kind of leverage that community that that exists. Um, and so that's what we did. We we started the Instagram page and then um, we launched our website as well to kind of try to collect a lot of resources for LGBTQ people out in different countries um, and kind of just bring that bring the community a little closer together. Yeah, Tim, I can resonate so much to that, and it leads me to my next more than question is a prompt for you all of. Just why? Why start an affinity group based on your Fulbright experience? Why this when you could be doing anything else with your time as young professionals or as professionals, um, depending on if you identify as young or not? But, you know, I think about that a lot, too. And when I was coming to this space, I was like, well, I think something that we all share and just from hearing you all here is that you had a once in a lifetime experience. You found yourself as one of few um, among your community to be in that space to have the privilege to be a Fulbrighter or a grantee from any other exchange program for those in in the audience or who will watch later. Uh, And so I hear a bit of wanting to give back and of wanting to to get more from your experience, not just your your time abroad. But I'd, I'd love to hear from you all um, why, why keep at it? Why, why several years later, you know, or in 2022, you all did your full rights a little after I did, but it, you know, it's, in my case, it's been almost 10 years in your cases, it's been four or five, six, why still stay connected? Why, why are you passionate about your affinity group with this exchange program still? Um, and then we'll get into a bit of the nitty gritty of, of the time and, and effort and programming and setup so that we can really learn how to replicate that too, but We'll keep it meta for now. Um, why don't we start with you, Tim? Sure. I think um, a lot of it has to do with just maybe who we are as Fulbrighters. We're, you know, global citizens who enjoy exploring new cultures and bringing people together and, and thinking globally. And so, at least for me personally, and I think probably for many on our team at Fulbright Prism, they they just, they love the Fulbright program. They love that mission of international education. And this is a way to kind of make that mission better. And while also engaging the parts of ourselves that, you know, we really thrive on this kind of energy. Um, So that's why I continue to do it. And I think that's why what a lot of my team would say as well. Um, And we just, we find it really rewarding to, to see new grantees get excited about hearing about Fulbright Prism and and finding resources that they found really helpful or getting to post on our Instagram page. Like it's just really exciting to, to see people out there and enjoying their, their grant and, and fulfilling their mission um, to be a Fulbrighter. I'm really inspired. Vanessa, <laughs> do you want to go next and then we'll pass it to you, Chichi? Yeah, I think I had a little fire in me after I came back and especially being an alumni ambassador you know once you talk about your experience and connect with students and applicants that had never heard about the program I guess if it was just me that I would get inspired to be like hey you can do this too and and kind of share the knowledge and share the opportunity and maybe the audacity in me to think that oh we could kind of you know move the needle and and make a little bit of a change in in the in the space of the community and how people can kind of 
learn from alumni and and use that to um, be inspired to apply. Um, So it's definitely not, you know, it's not our full-time jobs, you know, these are definitely something, at least for me, you know, Um, I don't get paid for this work in any way, but um, it is nice to know that you, you hear stories of like, oh, I applied because someone told me and that person was in the Fulbright Latinx community or in any of the affinity groups. And so it kind of makes it worth it. But I think it is just being in the headspace of like continuing to talk about your experience. And I personally just found it. I I found myself doing that anyway, regardless if I was an ambassador. So, and I know that I wouldn't have found these programs had it not been for like one person to tell me. So, um, yeah, I think it's it's nice to share knowledge and not hoard it. I uh, echo all both of their sentiments. Um, you know, I think, like I mentioned originally, it was just kind of being driven by the need. Um, and I think Tim put it put it really well. You know, as Fulbrighters, I think it's kind of in our DNA. It's what we do. It's why we're on the grants. And to Vanessa's point about being an ambassador, I remember literally writing that in my application. I was like, if y'all don't select me, I mean, I'm already an ambassador. So I'm already highlighting the program and trying to recruit people and just kind of share my experience with the program, especially because I I didn't, I was one of those people who didn't know about Fulbright. Someone told me about it in a very nonchalant way. I didn't recognize how prestigious it was. I think, to be honest, if I had, I probably wouldn't have applied or would have felt, you know, insecure about my application. So it wasn't until I started moving through the process that I realized kind of the gravity of what I was doing. And, you know, I, I really like this question in particular, because I think, you know, Vanessa makes a great point. We're not paid for this work. And, you know, the other three co-founders, Sonita, Desiree, and Hannah, you know, the first, I would say two or three years, it was really just the four of us, you know, just deciding where this platform was going to go, how we were going to help these communities, how we were going to organize programming. And when it was time for us to kind of think about turnover, you know, we had a serious discussion about the labor that we do as Black women in every space that we're in. And so we were all, you know, Sunita and myself were wrapping up our PhD programs. I think Desiree was transitioning between jobs and Hannah was getting ready to graduate and on the job market. And we all kind of came together and decided we needed to figure out how to transition and turn over our board to the next generation. And one of the discussions we had with them was, you know, we wanted to be transparent with them that this was free labor that they were doing, um, which I think is, you know, something we've we've struggled with. We're happy to do the work, but we were doing a lot of it for free, self-imposed, of course. But it's, you know, one of the caveats of, I guess, trying to trailblaze and, and improve your communities is deciding how much are you willing to give um, and, and, you know, what's a, what's a healthy kind of stopping point uh, for the group. And I can say seeing the other affinity groups in particular Latinx and PRISM, you know, seeing how the, the kind of work they've done, you know, becoming a nonprofit and, you know, getting winning grants and putting all these programming, it, it's inspiring to see. I, I love to just see 
the groups blossoming and how they're continuing to impact Fulbrighters and just people generally, you know, from, from here till the end of time. So I, I remind myself, you know, if today was the last day any of us ever posted anything or did any programming, we've already impacted so many people and, you know, that that's enough. If you, if you help one person, you have done enough. So I think that's what's kept me motivated to kind of stay connected, but I've in the same breath, it's also helped me find comfort in stepping away too, because I know that we have already done so much as a collective. That's such a, such a layered um, reflection, Chichi, as you're sharing, you're, you're teeing up perfectly what I'm dubbing the second half of this conversation, really. I, I wanted those watching to get inspired first and foremost from you all. Um, on your experiences and getting to know your intrinsic really motivation. I, I agree with all of you all because that is why we are Fulbrighters. That is why we go on exchange programs and we seek to, we seek to understand across lines of difference. And, and if you're applying anyway, whether you know the weight of it or not, once you figure out what you're going to be doing, you really have to be um, cut from this global bane to, to go off somewhere in another to another country for almost a year and, and do what we all did. So it's just really powerful to hear you all still stay so connected and be so connected to the mission of the work that you all did because it is a lot of work. And so in this next part of the conversation, I want you all to answer that question that Chichi posted for us. How much are you willing to give? From all of you all, I want to get into, again, the nitty gritty. So how many hours a week or a month are you spending on Fulbright Latinx, on PRISM, and on Fulbright Noir? I think you touched on a bit of that transition that your your team is going through, Chichi, but I'd love to go more into it. Um, and Tim, again, here, we're coming back to you because I definitely want you to go deep into um, your uh technical background of the group. So the legal framework of how you all are set up, you're a nonprofit. Why did you choose to do that? And so I want to pass it to each of you to not only share how much time you spend a week, but how is your group set up? Are you a nonprofit? How many people are on your board? How do you divide responsibilities? Um, how do you turn over? Do you have a, an MOU or do you have, um, do you, do you have elections? Just really, what does it take to run your groups on the day-to-day -day basis? Because what we hope from this conversation is that those watching will start their own affinity groups or will be connected to either Fulbright NAR or Fulbright PRISM or Fulbright Latinx in a, in a, um, more involved way and eventually become leaders of the groups here and, and other groups that exist as well. So take it away, Tim. We'll, we'll start with you and then uh, Vanessa and Chichi. Sure. Hermana, did I get to go first? Um, I'll start with the first one about how many hours a week. Um, it really varies. It really is. It really fluctuates week to week. I don't, I don't think I could give you a, a standard number. I think an average would be, would be, lowballing it since there are some weeks when it's a lot so um so I, i'd say probably probably maybe like an hour at least an hour a week but um there are more when i do five six ten sometimes depending on what we're doing last year we were preparing for a our first ever lgbtq conference uh, which was on zoom and also a, a cdaf grant uh, project and we were working a lot to get that up and running we had like 
dozens of speakers and we were like days long conference events. Um, so that took a lot of work. Um, typically we're not doing that week to week. Um, so I, I, we, we kind of work what we're, what we're able to give based on our other jobs. Like, like Vanessa and Chichi were saying, we all do this volunteer. Um, and so some weeks I have more free time and I can chip away at kind of our to-do list or, or initiate an, a, a new activity or something. And then other weeks, I just, I have too much work or like personal stuff going on where it is just what it is. Um, our webpage is always out there. Our Instagram page is always out there if, if people need things or our contact information, but you know, it just, it really depends. Um, and others on our team too, it, it fluctuates as well, depending on kind of what their projects are and, and things. Um, how we're organized. So Fulbright Prism is a, is a legal entity. We're a, a 501c3 nonprofit in the district of Columbia. Um, the reason we decided to do that was, um, I'm a lawyer, so I'm always thinking about things from kind of like a legal perspective. Um, and I thought it would just be a good way to kind of, um, I guess like gather ourselves as an, as an organization, um, kind of make ourselves official, give ourselves a name, give ourselves a bank account, um, it makes it easier to fundraise. Um, our donations are tax exempt, which is which is nice. Uh, we also benefit for a lot of nonprofit um, subsidies. So like um, Google Teams is kind of like their Google's kind of IT infrastructure that they that they sell, and we as a nonprofit get that for free, which is really a really great incentive to us. Um, actually, I think that was probably one of the now that I'm thinking about it and remembering back to like early 2018, I think that was one of the reasons we wanted to become an unofficial nonprofit because we could benefit from um, having free unlimited Google Teams access. Um, everyone gets their own Gmail account and Google Drive, and it makes it really easy to work as a as an organization. Um, and, and we get discounts on, on other things, and, and it's great. So. Um, so I think for a lot of all those different reasons, we, we decided to go ahead and do it. And since I, I'm not necessarily a, an attorney that works in nonprofit law or, or tax law, but I was I felt like I could leverage some of my, some of my background to, to make it work. Um, and now I'm helping some of the other affinity groups as well, explore that, that option, um, which has been really rewarding and fun. Um, so that's where we're organized our board. We technically only have three people on our board. Uh, it's myself, Michaela Gill, and Laura Steinecke are our three co-founders. Um, and then we have a volunteer team. of I, Currently, it's around nine people. Um, and they do everything from um, diversity and inclusion initiatives to our communications coordinator, who does all of our graphic design and Instagram posts and things like that. And we have a programming coordinator who syncs up... Um, ideas for different programs and speaking events and things of that nature. Um, a queer his, queer education and history coordinator who focuses on developing, primarily it's been lesson plans to date, but also just kind of collecting queer history and, and making sure that it's front and center of our work. Um, so it really runs the gamut and uh, yeah, it's a good team. Uh, we, we're always looking for, for new opportunities to serve the LGBTQ Fulbrighter community and and we love when people kind of give us feedback, whether it's, it's positive or negative. We always kind of take that to heart and, and find ways to adopt our our programming. Thank you, Tim, for sharing that. And that foresight, too, that you had will 
ensure a legacy, right? Um, you're leaving a, a solid structure, like Chi Chi was saying for the next generation, um, to hopefully, um, not have to deal with that incorporation and all the things that starting a nonprofit, I know every state is different. Um, but you already done a, a huge labor there to help Fulbright prism organizers for years to come. I'll pass it to you, Vanessa. Yeah. So we've definitely grown over the years. So I started off, it was just Elena and I, um, because of my graphic design background, um, I was a lot like the person like posting and interacting with folks online. Um, and then Elena would I Elena and I would like meet and kind of do more like tactics, administrative stuff. Um, and then we were like, yeah, we definitely need help. So we uh, called for a person who was interested. I think actually they reached out to us on LinkedIn. And we got Genesis to be on our team. And so that was really nice. And I think, um, so I'll say this before I keep going, but what's really nice, I guess, about, I'll speak for Fulbright Land Next, is like we've kind of also like leveraged it to kind of where we are in life. And so for me, like I would leverage it to also help me with my career and like be able to be like, oh, I have social media experience. I've done, I've run ads on Facebook. I've done IG Lives. And so for me, it's also kind of helped me put a leg up in my own career. And I'm saying this because Genesis reached out to us because she really wanted to do more DEI initiatives and, and was thinking about that in her work and how um, that could impact us. Uh, then shortly afterwards, or maybe a few months after, then we um, had Cheyenne on our team and our other folks who are a part of our mentorship program um, and so we've had a few folks um, help us out. And now we have like a job opportunities newsletter. Um, Cheyenne helps with a lot of administrative planning, like all these amazing um, panels. And so, and then I'm like behind the scenes, like promoting and doing ads and stuff. Um, I guess I'll echo what Tim said with the, with the time it takes, it really depends on what's going on. So like when we had this like, um, citizen diplomacy action fund grant, um, obviously it would take a little more time, especially if there's like deadlines to meet or reports to file or, you know, I'm purchasing things or designing. So that'll take a lot more time, probably like a few hours in the week. Um, I was involved with the We Represent conference last year with another CDAF grant as a representation of Fulbright Latinx, and that took a lot of my time. So it really fluctuates to see, um, depending on like what we have going on, and like when we have a mentorship cycle, our like mentorship folks then will um, kind of be contacting people emailing and so it, it just really depends on kind of what we have going on um when i would do ig lives i would spend an hour talking with <laughs> a fulbrighter um so yeah it really depends i think it sometimes is difficult because time zones you know <laughs> i'm sure tim knows um like working with different people in time zones like the cadence of meetings and like you know, our life happens. Hey, you know, my mom's in the hospital. I can't, can't meet this week. Just 
totally reasonable, obviously. So, um, yeah, it takes a lot of work, but it is a lot of like trying to like remind yourself why, why you're doing this and like to keep organized and a timeline. Um, yeah, because it's unpaid work at the end of the day. And so it, it kind of can happen where there's a few weeks and you're like, Oh, I haven't posted in a while. So. Yeah, definitely depends. I guess I can go in uh reverse chronological order of time uh, committed. So at this point in time, exactly zero hours a week for the past. I don't remember when we transitioned the board. Um, so we, did a hard turnover. We're still a resource to the board if anything comes up or they have questions. But um, when we, you know, submitted our call for applications for the next cohort of students to kind of run the group, we were basically like, we're going to trust you to maintain the integrity of the platform. Obviously, if <laughs> we see anything crazy on the Instagram, like we will hop back in and, you know, kind of do a hard reset. But that wasn't a true concern. So now where I'm at, I'm, I'm not running the org. I'm not planning. I'm not doing any of the organization, um, but always a resource. So if they reach out and they're like, hey, we, you know, can you serve on this panel or can you talk to this grantee or we're looking for something? I, you know, come in as needed. Um, and I would say when we started the organization and started thinking about the type of programming we wanted to do, I feel like we were putting in a lot of hours. Um, initially, I was kind of doing a lot of the stuff alone. It was just me kind of getting polls, finding people, but that's stuff that I kind of do anyway. Um, I, you know, that that's just like my, my personality is just connecting with people, learning their stories and, and trying to learn about their backgrounds and share that with others. Um, and then we had our in-person conference right before um, the pandemic or the year before the pandemic hit. That was a lot of work. <laughs> it was, I mean, writing a proposal, like multiple edits, sending it to different agencies, getting support from, you know, different government groups, Fulbright Belgium, um, U.S. Mission to the EU, like it, that I would say felt like a full-time job between the four of us. Um, the transition period was also a lot of work because we recognized that we wanted to step away fully. So we spent a lot of time thinking about how we wanted the organization to be structured, um, we, you know, put put the applications together. We made our own like internal criteria for how we were going to select. We got quite a few people who applied. And, you know, I think, you know, somehow it didn't register to us that everyone that applied was going to be fantastic because they're all Fulbrighters. So even just reviewing the applications and trying to select people for the position was really difficult for us to do. We had to kind of figure out ways to blind, you know, the applicants, remove any, you know, sensitive information so that we could objectively select um, who we wanted to move forward. So I would say that for us did take a lot of time. And when we transitioned the board, I believe we had, we had a few positions. We had two communications and outreach uh, positions, a fundraising position, a logistical coordinator, two social media positions, and then an event coordinator. 
And we, as a group, the four of us were, you know, kind of doing all of those together, spread amongst us evenly. And we felt that we didn't want the organization to really have any hierarchy per se, but that everyone was contributing equally because that's how the four of us worked. Like, even though I had the idea for Four Bright Noir and kind of got the ball rolling, you know, it was all four of us that got the organization to be what it was. So we just wanted to make sure that the roles were um, kind of clearly defined, but everyone was putting an equal effort and it was still kind of a joint team effort in making any kind of major decisions. So once the four of us did that, we all stepped away. So we're still resources, but none of the four of the original founders slash co-founders are running the Instagram. I don't even know the password to the Instagram, so I couldn't, you know, <laughs> I couldn't post if I wanted to. So, yeah. So I'm hearing a choose your own adventure, right? For for those of us that uh, are thinking about maybe starting something locally or for those of you who are thinking of joining, this is what it takes, right? Everything from... 10 positions like Chi Chi was mentioning to run all things with a board to a smaller team like Vanessa was mentioning um, that's really doing a little bit of everything to the formal nonprofit structure that Tim was mentioning. I, I think it's really great to hear that you all three have a different setup because really you can make this happen um, in many different ways, right? You can start a group in many different ways. You can keep a group going in many different ways. And what I love hearing from all three of you is that you all are, are thinking of the next generation always, right? Whether it's a formal uh, structure uh, or whether it's always bringing in people either from your programming or doing a call out for people to be involved. Uh, that's what's going to keep the groups going no matter your structure. So I love to hear from all three of you all that it's been really important for your groups to have continuation and for people who are involved in your programming to keep going. So that's really cool to hear. And again, the emphasis that you all are saying that I don't want to understate this, that this is free labor. And uh, as the four of us here on this call are part of marginalized groups, I think it's super powerful to have heard your anecdote in one of the previous um, questions or previous periods here on this call, Chi-Chi, that, you know, there is something that we have to think about, not just as you all are mentioning where we each are in our careers, or as you were sent, saying, Vanessa, things come up, but really what is our responsibility to do free labor in the systems that we work um, and understanding that there often is a lot of pressure to do more, to create more, and to be always working for uh, systems and programs that don't always have the manual for how to create affinity groups. So you all really are pioneers uh, in doing this free work, um, not only for the specific communities that you serve, but in many ways for the exchange programs that we are a part of and are alums of. So I just want to give you all um, snaps because it is really, really important to recognize the, the foundations that you all are setting um, for, for your groups. Um, I wanted to go more into the programming. You all mentioned all sorts of things that your groups are doing from putting on conferences to the transition in the board, which in and of itself could be a programming experience to mentorship, these panels that we're on, applying to grants to do more of these things, IG lives, 
Um, I would love to know um, what you all would consider your most successful programming or some of your more successful programs. And you can define success however you want. So I'll leave it up to you. Um, and also in the same breath, to quote you, Chi-Chi, and we'll start with you, um, I want to hear some failures. I want to keep it real. I want those listening who are going to tune in to also hear, like, what are some F-ups that you all are like, you know, this did not go well, and it can be related to programming or it can be related to your structure, really, again, open to you all. So success in terms of programming especially and failures, and it can be in any in any aspect of, of your group. So pass it to you, Chi-Chi, and then we'll go with you, Tim, and then you, Vanessa. Yeah. Um, hmm. I would say... That's tough. I would say maybe the, the, the biggest success, relatively speaking, would be the conference we had our first year. Um, so we brought in about 20 to 25... Um, Black Fulbrighters for a two-day conference that was in Brussels um, and then had, you know, guest speakers within um, the country to kind of talk about some issues as being, you know, Black scholars, Black artists, how they navigate racism and kind of how we as international scholars can kind of, you know, um, respond to micro macro racist aggressions from a place of power and not let those things um i would say harm us personally um i i think tim had mentioned you know as as we started these groups we you know i had personally had a really good experience on my fulbright but as i connected with others within our affinity group i learned about a lot of um you know, just disheartening, sad, unsettling, just honestly traumatic experiences that Black Fulbrighters were going through. So it was a space for us to talk about that, um, to propose solutions, to talk about ways to um, address the lack of resources that existed, ways we could improve upon them. So I think just honestly bringing all of those people together in a space alone, just, just the visual of that and a European country was, was really empowering. And the fact that, you know, we brought an idea to life um, as scholars in our spare time. That for me, I would, I would say is definitely, definitely one of the highlights. And, you know, I'm still connected with, with people from that experience to, to this day. Um, failure, you know, I'm, I'm a big proponent of, of sharing failures and, um, you know, pitfalls, <laughs> but I'm, I'm shocked. I'm going to say this, but I can't really think of anything that's coming to mind from our group. I will say planning the conference was extremely challenging. I think, you know, <sighs> Because we all, I think because we have equal equal say and equal input, sometimes um, our vision for how we wanted the conference to unfold was not always in alignment amongst the four of us. So I don't know if that counts as a fit. Maybe I could put that in a, in a challenge category. Challenge. I was going to say challenge. <laughs> it, that I, I, I can honestly say that that was um, 
difficult for us, even just kind of deciding the programming, um, the funding, like where we were going to get sponsorship from, even where we were going to host the country, how we were going to select who got to attend that I would say, um, was difficult. And, you know, I'm, I'm proud of the work that we did, but I will say, I, I personally feel like it was a lot to do as a volunteer. Like, I feel like what we did as a group is like, could be someone's full time, like paid job with an advanced degree. So I think that was really stressful for all of us um, as a group. And sometimes that, that I think made it challenging for us to kind of work cohesively together. Um, In the end, you know, once we finished and it was like deep sigh of relief, (laughs) we were like, okay, that was a struggle, but you know, it was worth it once we kind of got everyone together and everyone shared like how uplifting and restorative that space was for them. I can say, um, you know, when I started the group or had the idea, I wanted it to be, you know, I, I, it's almost like I could see the work it would take for the platform to be where I originally wanted it to go, for example. Right. I was like, Oh, it'd be great to like, you know, have a, an official group, you know, do meetups around the world, have regular conferences, start a LinkedIn group, have an email, have a website, all of these things. And I think, you know, when it was time to transition, part of me, I would say personally felt like, you know, there was more we could have done. There's more we should have done. Um, now where I am, like I think going back to what I had mentioned earlier and just kind of celebrating what we've already done has helped me to shift my perspective on looking at the work that we've done. So I would say back then I, I might've viewed that as a failure, like, oh, you know, we should have 50,000 followers on Instagram and we should, you know, be connected with this group and we should have had our conference, you know, every year with, without any delay. And it should have just been this, you know, powerhouse of a global organization. I would say back then I I would have felt, you know, um, disheartened that it didn't grow in that way. But I think that was, a conscious decision amongst the four of us. Like, I know we could have done that, but it's to your earlier question, it was how much time did we want to dedicate and pour into this group in addition to all of the other things that we're doing? So I would say recently, like in the past couple of years, I'm like, hey, if the board posts, you know, one feature in two years or a feature every week or whatever, like, we've already impacted somebody. Someone has seen a Black Fulbrighter, a Black scholar that they otherwise would not have connected with. And if it just impacts one person, then that's more more than enough. So I would say, you know, it's, it's not quite a, a failure, but something I would have seen as a failure in the past. And now it's something I've learned to just say, no, that's just how things unfolded. That was a conscious decision and what you have done is enough. We are enough. I love it. Tim, I'll pass it to you. Sure. That was great. Um, I think 
Yeah, I'll start with some successes. Um, we had, I think this was now back in 2020, actually. So right when the pandemic started and everyone was inside, um, had nothing to do but go on Zoom, uh, we really capitalized on that at a good time. And we had a, um, <clears throat> excuse me, a, a interview plus Q&A with the director of the film Disclosure from Netflix and one of the cast members. And that was just very cool, you know, to have a, like Netflix famous people on Fulbright Prism platforms talking about Fulbright issues. Um, it was very well attended compared to a lot of our other events. Um, that was just really something really fantastic um, and cool to be a part of. Um, presently, actually, we're, we're, we launched our first ever mentorship program um, as well. And I think we have <clears throat> something like 90 people signed up between mentees and mentors. And so that like when we were first planning, we we're like, we've been wanting to do a mentorship program for a couple of years. I know some of the other affinity groups um, do them and they've been inspiring us to kind of get it together and do one of our own. Um, and so we were planning this We're like, well, we'll be successful if we have like 20 people sign up. So I was like blown away that we had all these people, mentors and mentees sign up. Um, it was really great. So that, that was a huge success, I think. And, and we're just getting started with that. And I'm, I'm curious to see how the year goes with the mentorship program. Um, but th those have all been great. Failures? Um, yeah, I think I agree with Chi Chi. It, it's hard for me to say that we've like failed at anything um some things don't live up to our kind of our expectations or our hopes you know you you host an event and four people come or five people come when you're hoping for 25 people or, or whatever um or you got that you just scheduled it poorly and you know people <laughs> exactly worst. um or, you know, you just like you pick the wrong time zone so people couldn't come and people end up watching it on YouTube or something. Um, but like Chi Chi said, I think I think if our mission is to empower LGBTQ Fulbrighters to be out in the world, even if we reach one person once a day or one person once a month or, or something that they feel like their Fulbright grant or their sense of community is improved because of us, then we're fulfilling our mission. And so I, it's very hard for me to say that we're failing at that mission, even if it moves along slowly at times or it's not quite as grandiose as we were hoping for it to be. Um, I, I think it's it's very hard for us to say that we've ever failed. Um, and that's something that we try to remind our team, you know, especially after these events where we don't get the people that we want or the questions weren't as like interesting as we were hoping or whatever. We just say like, you know, like it made a difference in someone's life and, and that's important enough and, and we should be proud of that. And so I think, yeah, I think that's probably the, the compass that you have to use as far as challenges go. There are a lot of challenges. Um, it, it, like, I mean, first and foremost, like everyone's been saying this whole call, um, we're, we're a volunteer organization. And so, the, time, the, the free time to do it, you know, varies. Our ability, our, our, our expertise and knowledge vary. Um, when we were planning the conference, there were a bunch of things that we thought would be really interesting, but it's just like, we don't know anybody in like XYZ field. Like we don't even know who to contact to have them speak on this. And we're not qualified to speak on these things or whatever. Um, so lots of challenges. Um, working around the different time zones is also a challenge. Um, having to do most of your things virtual, I think is a challenge. So we <clears throat> we all kind of, I think, try to address or like encompass the entire world and our mission. And so 
it's really hard for organizations with very, very small to no budget um, and um, teams just scattered everywhere where you're jumping on Zoom or WebEx and, and things like that. So that can be a challenge. I know we've gotten, I think, better as a society with using virtual meetings since the pandemic, but um, it is, it's still hard to, to keep to keep people engaged and keep people coming back when everything's online. Um, i trying to think what else. I like Chi Chi's point too about, you know, you just have lots of different personalities and opinions in your team. And and so I think um, we've never gotten into any like heated, nasty fights, but there's always like good discussion that goes on and, and trying to figure out, you know, exactly what we're going to do and what's the best course of action for the team and for the organization. Um, I think that comes with its own challenges as well. Um, I think at Prism, we, we have a great group and, and we, we usually um, work really well as a team, but there's always really good discussions about, you know, oh, well, do we want to present it this way or present it that way? Or do we have this speaker or that speaker? And um, so that's always a challenge. Um, it's not, it's only a little one. Um, yeah, I think the, the ones that come to, to top of my mind. Um, but overall, yeah, I think like Chichi was saying that the main point is, as long as we're making the difference that we've set out to make, then it's all worth it. And nobody can call us a failure or, or say that we're not doing doing enough, especially since we're doing this all for free and <laughs> out of the goodness of our hearts. The hearts are rolling in. It's a true labor of love, you all. Uh, I think that that's definitely going to be one of the takeaways from this from this chat, Vanessa. Um. In terms of successes, I think I'm pretty proud of our mentorship program that we've established. Um, I think our feedback uh, from potential applicants has been really positive and people have really liked the mentorship program. We've been doing it for maybe two years now. Um, we have a few folks that Cheyenne was, uh, has been a part of it. Um, Genesis on our team kind of really build it out. And a lot of folks really like it and have kind of um, seek it out. We get, you know, asked all the time. And it's just, I guess it was very odd that it didn't exist before with the Fulbright program, given that everyone's experience in specific and in, in a set country is so different based on how you show up in the world and so it's like really impactful like Chichi was saying to like know what your experience is going to be as a black Fulbrighter in Poland you know because it's not going to be the same if you go to Colombia or if you go to I don't know Morocco it, it's just going to be a very different experience and like even for me like um my experience in the Middle East was very different because I look Arab and so I have Arab privilege, as I always say, and I can, um, I would kind of blend in. And so that for me kind of helped me in a lot of social situations. But if, you know, you're Southeast Asian going to, um, going to the Middle East, that's a very different situation. So the mentorship program for us was really helpful in, and we got received a lot of positive feedback in um, linking people up based on their country of interest, region of interest. Um, yeah. And so I'm very proud of that. 
in terms of failures or challenges, um, uh, I think to Tim's point, it's kind of been hard. I don't know for um, existing in a space that's so virtual, but then there's a lot of virtual exhaustion. Um, you kind of go through waves of like very few people attend your events, but it is nice that you can, you know, keep the information out there and it lives forever on YouTube or Facebook. So people can eventually find it if they need it uh, ever. Um, so we've had like low attendance to some virtual events, but we did try to do a meetup potluck one time. And I will say only one person showed up, but we had meaningful conversation with that person. So, you know, that was like a nice little connection. We went out to dinner and Elena was there too, who was on this call. And, um, you know, it's just like not having, we're a volunteer run organization. We don't have money to pay ads to do this thing or to, you know, I don't know what it would take to get more people, but we had 20 people RCP, one person showed up. So, you know, there's a lot of factors that go into it, but it's fine. Um, and then challenges, like, I'll echo what everyone else has been saying with like team. I think it's hard to know how much time you can put into a group like this. Um, it's hard in terms of Fulbright Land Next to like, it's, it's been hard for us to like recruit people that can put in the time because it takes a lot of time sometimes. And I know like Cheyenne who's on this call has put so much time and we're so grateful. I'm so grateful for Cheyenne um, to be able to kind of coordinate and administer a lot of this panel and honestly, a lot of the grant. Um, and when the cycles of mentorship program go out, um, you know, that's like influx of hours you have to put in. So it is difficult. So people know like kind of what they're getting themselves into. And, you know, you're going to be up front, but it's, it, you know, it's hard because we've had people join our board, but then you never hear from them again, you know? So I think that's been a bit of a challenge in figuring out like, where do we find the passionate people that, <laughs> that can kind of stick around and, uh, you know, I don't know how Fulbright Noir did it to completely turn over that responsibility. Maybe we'll have to have a chat at some point, but, um, yeah, it's also nice to kind of keep it fresh and, you know, you also don't want to get burnt out, right? You, you are so passionate for the mission. Like we all want a more equitable application process for international education for Fulbright and it's not that we don't you know it's not like all of a sudden like we don't care as much it's just it's hard because it's we go on to different parts of our lives we're in a new job we're doing this we're doing that and you know we need to pass over the torch at some point so I have to piggyback off of that adding to challenges and failures the point about people joining the board <laughs> and never hearing from them again we we are not immune from that and i i put this in the chat but i think for any organization turnover like that's what keeps me up at night is like where is this going to be 10 years from now if i step away 5 years from now and I, that that has been a challenge you know I I I don't know what the next round of turnover is going to be like we just 
hope for the best. And I think I have had to make peace with, there may be a day where someone hands me the account and I just have to put a post and write a very thoughtful caption saying, you know, thanks for your support over the years. We are now inactive, but we'll always be a family or a community. I'm I'm just kind of like, that day might come, it might not, but just being honest and transparent about that, I think it's 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 difficult to like keep things going and step away from them at the same time. And I think about, you know, how how could our affinity groups be institutionalized? How could we make these groups operate in a way where it's not solely volunteer work, right? Or applying for grants to cover funding. And I, I don't know. I don't, I don't have an answer for that. Um, but I just put it out into the universe and hopefully, (laughs) hopefully maybe the next generation can, can figure out a way to do that. But it's, it's that, that is a challenge. I, as you were saying that, I was like, let me just hop in there. We do not have, (laughs) we do not have it figured out at all, but we just, we just did our best. So that's all we can do. I love that you all have reframed this and also the whole whole writers don't fail approach is just so present and in all this like we tried we're doing our best always optimistic but some things suck some things just suck some things are just hard some things are challenging that was a sentiment that I really wanted to to bring out here so we got there and so plus one here to your candor Chichi I love it and to all three of you all for sharing again the reality of doing a fully volunteer led uh pursuit and I use the word pioneers which you all really are but also trailblazers and so you're the only ones doing what you're doing you're starting this off you're the first cohort of your groups you're trying to find people to bring it in you have really ambitious programming that you want to do whether it's conferences or mentorship programs um, or all of the above and I am really just proud to hear that you all are cutting yourself some slack too and saying even if it's one person that we helped um, even if it's one person that um, saw themselves and saw the possibility of being able to apply to this program, or even if you are fulfill, are doing uh, one post to help the LGBTQ community see themselves out in the world, like you were saying, Tim, it, it's worth it, and you're fulfilling your mission. Again, to quote you, um, it it is a labor of love. So I'm I'm both proud that we could get there to really share the real stuff too for those watching to see that it's hard, that it's a again a volunteer-led initiative, that there are different personalities on your leadership teams that you have to negotiate and that despite you not having any crazy drama to your point Tim of, of nothing horrible happening, it is challenging to mediate and moderate and coming to um to agreements to make sure that your groups thrive. So I'm just really grateful um, to to know that you all are doing this. And, and yes, Jeremy, plus one to you, that they are always excited to hear about it because it, it really does help bring the experience just beyond your, your grant year or your scholar year or your ETA year. So with all that, you all, I wanted to prompt for a final question and also open it up for questions from those who are joining us here right in the chat. Anything that's on your mind that you want uh, Chi-Chi, Tim, and Vanessa to elaborate on, we'll definitely leave some space for that too. And I wanted to start with you, Vanessa, this time on my last prompt here. You touched on it a bit, which was how you are leveraging your affinity group for your professional growth. So I wanted to prompt you all 
on sharing a bit more of that. You can also share personally how these affinity groups have enhanced your lives. I think you mentioned it, Chichi, a bit on um, just the connections and the friendships that you all have made. You talked about that, Tim. So the question is, how has being involved here helped you all professionally and personally? And an anecdote would be great, a story that you want to share. Um, so we'll start with you, Vanessa. You talked about social media. What else is there that you want us to know about how this group has impacted you? Yeah, so I think, um, so as a graphic designer, um, there are points in my life where I was involved with Fulbright Latinx and I was also like in a transition career-wise. So it always kind of helped me leverage like, okay, what kind of work do I want to be doing and have that, Uh, reflect in the title and the responsibilities and that I would be able to talk about that in like job interviews and say yeah I have run ads I have um um you know managed social media analytics and kind of like made decisions from it and whatnot um so it definitely leveraged it and it helped me it helped me land my current job um and sorry, what was the second question you asked? I totally lost my train of thought. Just professionally and personally. Ah, yes. And professionally. Um, and personally. Uh, personally, I think it's been, it's just, it's so, I don't know. It's really nice to connect with other Fulbrighters that lead such different lives. But like, there's like... I don't know. It's because we're full writers, but there's just such a nice connection when you meet someone else that has kind of been through, you know, the same application process um, that you're able to talk to freely about, you know, traveling and being able to, you know, having done so many things. It's just, it's really inspiring to be in that space. And um, I feel like not only as affinity groups do we inspire each other, but I'll speak for myself. I feel like all the people that I have met, like, will inspire me personally to like, think about doing a PhD or to like, you know, even like, oh, what is it like to start a nonprofit or um, it's just, it's really nice to learn from so many different people, even people you didn't know that would like live close to you to meet up with them and to kind of keep those connections in your life. I think it's nice to have people that you know, can be role models and mentors for you and, and just like a positive, um, positive source of inspiration for you to be like, Oh, you know, what's this person got going on? You're like, wow, this is great. (laughs) And, and, and to, you know, spread the positive energy and vibes to them as well. And, and yeah, it's just, yeah, that's been really nice. Tim, we'll go with you and then we'll close with you, Chi-Chi. Um, professionally, um, I have to be honest, I don't know if, if it's helped me get a job or has, you know, um, I don't know, I, I, I'm not sure how, how much it's advanced my career, but it has definitely prepared me for certain things that I do on my job, um, in a very real way. Um, so for example, back when I was in law school and I we just started this organization and I was, um, <clears throat> doing two things for Fulbright Prison. One was, you know, coordinating with a lot of people all over the world 
um, both both for our, our programming. So, for example, I was building out this res- this resource library on our web page where we have all of these countries listed and then like these drop down meant like other pages with all these resources listed. Um, so I was coordinating that, but then I was also, you know, meeting with Fulbright staff and administrators and grantees all over the world, like having meetings and, and coordinating across time zones. Um, and so I was doing that for a year or two when I started my, my current job as an attorney at an international law firm. And currently at my job, I do, um, a lot of international meetings. I'm always, my, my team, even though I'm based here in DC, my, my actual practice group is, is kind of all over the world. Just the nature of what we're doing is, is international. So I work with people in Paris and Milan and Shanghai and, and Melbourne and um, like cities all over the world. And so having already had that experience from Fulbright Prism to just like, you know, be accustomed to working across time zones and thinking globally really, really, I don't know, prepared me for that, I think. Um, and then the other thing that I work on, so one of our kind of internal um, law firm resources that we maintain just for our, our kind of in-house use is is a library of um, specific statutes and regulations in, in each jurisdiction around the world um, for, for my specific practice group and practice area and so i kind of manage that and it, it's very much akin to our resource library it's it's broken down country by country and we have the template with all the different like questions that we ask for each country like does the country do this does the country do that does the, like and so it's almost like exactly like the fulbright prism resource library um except i get paid to to do it um so i think kind of having that background of having already coordinated that and done something similar to that i was like wow this is like so crazy how like similar this this one project is that i work on um and that's not like all of my job but that's just like one thing that i I kind of got staffed on and now i am kind of in charge of managing month to month and um it's just funny how how similar it is so i think um it's not it's 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 not like vanessa where you know i could say like well i'm CEO of this nonprofit, give me, give me a law job. Um, it wasn't quite a direct transfer like that, but all of the skills that I kind of sharpened and, and learned through Fulbright Prism definitely are paying off um, and helping me a lot. I would say, yeah, everything that Vanessa and Tim shared. Um, I for sure highlight the um, organizational skills it took to put on the first conference that we had and so many applications. (laughs) Um, I mean, fellowships that I've applied for, job positions, interviewing, you know, tell us about a time when you had to, I mean, I draw on Fulbright Noir and my Fulbright experience as a whole um, all of the time. I think that it's, yeah, I, I don't know that I can say it's it's propelled my career forward in like a uh, like a concrete way. Like I can't say it, get, it got me a job, which is awesome, uh, Vanessa, that you were able to <laughs> kind of leverage that. But I, but I can say that it's definitely further developed my skills that I've been able to speak to. So it's been kind of a catalyst for me to be able to discuss, you know some of the skills that I have that are transferable to positions that I'm interested in. And so, I would say actually a lot of my my interest and background is in the pharmaceutical industry. So I'm interested in kind of non-clinical safety space and that's aligns with my degree. But 
There have been a number of times where recruiters and people at, you know, large companies have been, have said like, wow, I'm so impressed by the work that you did with Fulbright Noir and all of your extracurricular activities. So it's kind of like, I'm able to weave in that experience with the other things that I've done to kind of build this trend of showing, you know, whatever space that I'm in, I'm going to improve, whether that's Fulbright, whether that's at school, whether it's at work. So it's, it, I think it just kind of further um, enhances that. So I would also say the network for sure. Um, the people that I had to collaborate with uh, to kind of get that support, the people that we met are still incredible resources for me, have written me letters of recommendation. <laughs> um, so that that's been pretty good. And then, you know, to Vanessa's point, I think just the community, the people that you meet, that you network with. I mean, everyone's inspiring. I can say everyone on this call, you know, we're all together again um, because of the work that we're doing with our affinity groups. And I'm always inspired by the both of you from hearing like what you're doing and even just hearing, you know, your Genesis stories and why you kind of structured the organizations the way that you did. It's it's cool to hear that and see like how y'all approach that differently and very powerfully too, you know, and still going, right? Like <laughs> we bowed out gracefully and you guys are still going strong and just making such a such an amazing impact. So I would say being a part of the Fulbright Noir space has really been a privilege to just be around a bunch of movers and shakers and people who are doing incredible, um, extraordinary work. Uh, I would say that's definitely the best part is the people um, that we meet. And even as, you know, we're on this call, I'm like, I don't have time, but <laughs> like we should, we as, you know, founders and <laughs> I see Elena's laughing, um, founders and co-founders and, and executive members should leverage the network within ourselves. I think we have spent a lot of time trying to help other people and maybe we can direct some of that energy and effort towards ourselves and use each other more as a resource. So I'm, you know, moments like this, events like this, I'm like, yeah, I should like reach out to you all more and just like check in and maybe we can do a meetup or something like that um, down the line. But, you know, we're, we're, <laughs> we're all Fulbrighters. We don't fail. So um, it's a <laughs> wink, wink. It's it's a good group. I see a t-shirt uh, opportunity. Fulbrighters don't fail. It'll help us with our revenue. We can divide it Oh God! Groups, <laughs> right, and we have we have another another tagline here, which is it's nice oh. to share knowledge and not hoard it, Vanessa. So that's also another t-shirt idea um, that we can bring to life and and help <laughs> the, with the sustainability of our group. All right, you all. So we have about six minutes left together. And I want to pass it to Jeremy, who I see has a question, and I'm going to read it out and then pass it to him to see if he wants to add more. So his question for you all is, are there any misconceptions you feel like the Fulbright program has about the affinity groups that we as staff could help dispel? I ask because when I do orientations, I and my colleague share about the affinity groups and want to make sure we represent you well. Happy to say more. So questions there for you all to, to recap to in the chat, whoever wants to jump in. I can, I can speak to this. Um, I think one thing that comes to mind is, this was my impression, when we all 
were born, all the affinity groups were born. Um, it kind of felt like the Fulbright program was a bit like intimidated by us because we were raising, we were raising a lot of like facts about the lack of representation and support for marginalized groups. And um, it wasn't an attack. It was like facts. <laughs> and we saw a need for obviously the affinity groups and we wanted to um, do something about it, which is why, you know, Chi Chi started Fulbright Noir and like Fulbright Prison began and Fulbright Latinx. And so, yeah, I think it was an interesting dynamic. And I'll, I'll speak to the experience with Fulbright Latinx where sometimes we would share information and it felt like the State Department or Fulbright program where felt attacked and like didn't really re realize that the work we were trying to do was to like help that. You know, it's not like it was our job just to like um, be negative. It was just, hey, these are the facts. Like, how can we like spread the word more about Fulbright so people hear about it? I can add to that. Um, although I'm somewhat removed, I I feel like I think about this a lot with with recruitment because I feel like there's some mm, there's a way to go about it where maybe you know people have different views on how to approach discussing the challenges with the program, right? So um I think for us, I can see for Fulbright Noir, it was really important that we tell the truth about the negative experiences that grantees are having. That said, that's obviously not going to be a good marketing or recruiting tool for the Fulbright program, you know, to say, well, hey, this, you know, Black woman who went to this specific country was the only Black person in the whole city and had rocks thrown at her and felt unsafe the entire time she was there and had a terrible experience, right? But I think there has to be um, a tactful way to be honest about the challenges that we face while working together to come up with solutions so that we feel free to kind of speak to the facts that Vanessa mentioned um, while also understanding that we can still support the program, like the two can coexist. I don't know if there are any misconceptions about Fulbright Noir per se, I think, um, you know, I remember when the, the, they put like the blurb on the Fulbright website that, you know, we're not affiliated with the Fulbright program in any official way. I think that's a good thing. <laughs> um, just to be honest, I, I think there might be things that because it's a government supported grant, there might be certain things that we couldn't do or say in the way that we do as independent groups. Yeah, I think that's that's what I was going to say. Um, it's hard. I don't know. I can't think of many specific misconceptions. Um, but I think probably piggybacking off of what Chi-Chi was saying is that um, I think originally maybe the Fulbright program or, or people even outside the Fulbright program saw us as an extension of the program itself. And I think the Fulbright program um, – tried to figure out ways to kind of control us or bring us, you know, within their kind of sphere of influence and people outside of the, the 
the program, you know, not not in the State Department or, or working for the Fulbright program, kind of thought, oh, well, we have Fulbright in our name. Maybe we're part of that. Um, so we've worked very hard to, to dispel that misconception and that, like, we love the Fulbright program. We're advocates of the Fulbright program. We all did Fulbright grants, but we're here to fix to fix real problems and, and advocate for ourselves in ways that nobody is necessarily doing. Um, and we're going to do that in our on our own terms and in our own way, um, which I think is is one of our great advantages as an as an affinity group is that we can do that. Like Chichi was saying, we're not tied to the government. We're not tied to any specific message or rules. Um, and in many ways, I think that is a huge advantage. And I think, um, I think probably the Fulbright program has, has started to realize that and, and has looked to us more now as a as a partner and and uh, um, <clears throat> and um, kind of learned to to work with us and and not try to kind of figure us out and pin us down and stuff. Um, so I think yeah, it's, it's, that's probably the only misconception that that comes to my mind as far as working with grantees and trying to and trying to you know get our message out there i think just continuing to push our mission and push our our websites and our instagrams our links getting our name out there um so so grantees can find us i know like i think back to when i was a grantee in germany in 2016 2017 like if someone had told me about an organization like Fulbright prison i would be so excited like do a deep dive their website and contact other people like i so and i we get people like that all, all the time every every time new grantees join um we get lots of people email out actually just this week i got a, a bunch of emails from from a new program that started like we heard about you and we're so excited so it's yeah just i think just keep pushing our name out there and and letting people know that we exist and, and we're there to represent them and to, to kind of bring them together is, is a good place to start. Well, thank you all. It looks like we are at time. You all have shared so many important, powerful anecdotes. You've re-inspired me to stay connected with Fulbright and hopefully those watching here and who will watch later will also get inspired to either join you all, whether it's Fulbright Noir, Fulbright Latinx, Right Prism or to start their own affinity group. This panel was moderated by Liz Alarcón. And this episode was edited by Madeline Santizo and Genesis Garcia. The song you're listening to is Vamos a Tocar Sonero by Frank Guerrero y su grupo Ashe. Yeah,